Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of disaster scenarios and death. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Shortly before 1 a.m. on June 14, 2017, Behalu Kabede awoke to a strange beeping in his London apartment. It was an unfamiliar noise, so he groggily got up to investigate the source. When he opened the door to the kitchen, he was hit with a cloud of thick white smoke. Immediately, Kabede dialed emergency services. When the call didn't connect, he tried again, desperately hoping to get through. Finally, the call connected. Then, wearing only his boxers, Kabede frantically sprinted out of his apartment. He pounded on every door in the hallway, shouting, fire, fire, fire. One by one, distressed residents opened their doors and flooded out of the building. Kabede circled back to his flat for a pair of pants before fleeing outside. All the while, the room grew hotter and hotter. Even though help was on the way, first responders would arrive to a scene they were vastly underprepared for. While they believed Grenfell Tower was built to isolate fires, the flames in Kabede's apartment were already spreading well beyond his floor. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Grenfell Tower. In 2017, a simple kitchen fire escalated into a blaze that destroyed a 24-story building in London. The disaster cost more than 70 lives. Today, we'll walk through the disaster and how the fire caused so many fatalities. We'll also analyze the fire department's response and touch on the subsequent investigation into the devastating tragedy. Next time, we'll dive into three theories behind the events at Grenfell Tower. Some believe the tower's landlords were to blame, that their cost-cutting methods directly caused the spread and intensity of the blaze. Others claim the contractors oversold how safe their buildings actually were by manipulating the test results of their products. It's also possible that the problems at Grenfell could be more common than people think. Knowing that, we'll also consider whether collective carelessness on part of the companies and landlords operating lower-income housing has led to multiple tragedies around the UK. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. 
The Underworld podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. In 2017, the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea was one of the wealthiest in all of England. On average, its residents earned £123,000 per year, or around $156,000. However, that number doesn't tell the whole story. In reality, the borough has a deep wealth divide. The median salary is just £32,000 per year, which is just over 40,000 US dollars. Not only does that mean that half of these households earn less than 32,000 pounds, it also indicates a startling disparity. Those at the median are earning over 90,000 pounds less than the average salary. The gap between the wealthy and everyone else is enormous. According to one city analysis, despite having the highest average salary in the UK, over a third of the borough's residents earn less than 20,000 pounds. The grim reality is while many wealthy Londoners call the borough home, there are so many more residents who barely afford to live there. It's gaps like these that first caused the British government, back in 1974, to pipe money into funding social housing. With this aid, Lower-earning households throughout the country were able to afford better homes. High-rise apartments began springing up all over London, which eventually included Grenfell Tower. By 2017, Grenfell Tower was a 24-floor giant. At 220 feet tall, the social housing project was one of the only skyscrapers in the borough. It housed around 350 people across 129 apartments. Grenfell was also a diverse community. Immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, and countless others called the Flats home. This included everyone from young people who just moved to London to elderly folks who'd lived in the tower for more than 30 years. Still, the tenants found themselves bonded together over the building's quirks. Often, they joked that they knew each other so well because they spent so long waiting for the slow elevator. But on the night of June 13th, 2017, an unspeakable tragedy pushed the community to its breaking point. A little before 1 a.m. on June 14th, Behelu Kabede awoke to a strange beeping coming from his kitchen. Upon opening the adjoining door, smoke billowed into his face and confirmed his worst fears. A fire had broken out in his kitchen and was poised to spread fast. He immediately dialed emergency services, but the calls seemed to take ages to go through. So with his cell phone propped against his ear, Kabede ran frantically around the flat, banging on his roommate's bedroom doors. Then he did the same for his whole floor, he rushed down the hall, alerting the other residents of the fire. After hearing of the blaze at Grenfell, 44-year-old firefighter David Badillo was amongst the men to throw on his gear and head to the truck. 
Within minutes, he and his squad sped towards the complex. A little after 1 a.m., they arrived on the scene. The crew operated with complete calm. They were well-versed in dealing with high-rise fires. They knew the buildings were made of concrete. The material would contain the flames within the floors and apartments, stopping a disaster before it had even begun. Which meant for Badillo and his team, their job at Grenfell was relatively simple. They needed to find the fire, isolate the source, and extinguish it. So they hurried to the fourth floor flat where the blaze started. At first, it seemed like an ordinary call. They located Cabete's kitchen and doused the flames with water. Seemingly, it was what should have ended the fire. But then the firefighters noticed something alarming. The blaze had spread across the apartment and out the window. Flames were climbing up the side of the building. They'd never seen a fire travel up a high-rise like that. Not only did the squad receive word of flames on the fifth and sixth floors, it wasn't stopping there. From outside, onlookers watched in horror as the blaze started to consume the east side of the building. While some Grenfell residents fled the premises immediately, dozens more had no idea that there was a fire blazing around them. Without a central alarm system or other emergency warnings, many continued to sleep through the early moments of the disaster. If they'd woken up then, it would have been easier for them to escape. However, for those who did hear of the fire, they didn't necessarily leave their flats. Many heeded the advice their landlords had given them and remained in their homes. It was called the stay put policy. Like the firefighters, the landlords thought Grenfell's concrete would contain fires to each floor. Plus, the building only had a single staircase. If everyone ran down at the same time, it could create a fatal bottleneck. In fact, there were even notices of the stay-put policy posted beside the building's elevators. So when the fire broke out that night, many of the residents followed this advice to stay put and wait for further instruction. However, that policy only worked if the fire didn't spread. Around 1.30 a.m., David Badillo ran through the Grenfell lobby on his way to grab more equipment. There, a woman stopped to ask the veteran firefighter if he could retrieve her 12-year-old sister from the 20th floor. He assumed the flames weren't anywhere close to such a higher floor, and he promised her he'd find the girl. And because he believed the fire was relatively contained, Badillo sprinted back into the building without a breathing apparatus. He climbed onto the elevator and hit the button for the 20th floor. The elevator rose past the lower floors without issue, but near the 15th floor, it lurched to a stop. The elevator could go no further. Badillo steadied himself against a wall as the door slid open. A wall of black smoke blinded him and filled the lift. The firefighter had a frightening realization. The fire had reached the top floors, and all of Grenfell would soon be engulfed in flames. Badillo had no choice but to crawl out of the elevator and feel blindly for the emergency stairwell. When it comes to fires, smoke is often just as dangerous as the blaze itself. For someone trapped in the thick, ashy air, fumes can swell up the lungs and block the flow of oxygen. 
Without a breathing apparatus, David Bedillo could only cover his mouth and nose with an arm to prevent himself from suffocating. Eventually, he was able to make his way down the 15 flights of stairs to the lobby once more. After alerting the rest of the squad that the fire had spread further than they anticipated, he asked for help to again look for the missing girl. Two other firefighters volunteered, so the crew began the long trudge to the 20th floor. They had just 31 minutes for their search and rescue. That's all their oxygen tanks would last. If they started to panic and breathe harder, it would be even less. After what felt like hours of climbing, they reached the 20th floor, home to the missing girl's apartment. The door to the apartment was open, but Bedillo wasn't sure if she'd actually escaped. So even though the unit was already thick with smoke, two of the men trudged in. Through an inside window, they could see the fire creeping along the outside of the building. Any moment, it would break through the window and fill the 20th floor. Bedillo shouted for the girl over and over, but there was no response. Until he heard a high-pitched whistle. The oxygen tank on his partner's back was giving a warning alarm. The whistle was Bedillo's notice that they were nearly out of time. If they stayed any longer, they could run out of oxygen. If they left, they could be abandoning the child if she hadn't been able to flee. Bedillo decided to leave to protect his partner's safety. They'd given everything they had to rescue the girl. Now, they had to find their way down to help others. When the crew reached the lobby, they collapsed from exhaustion. It was nearly 2 a.m. By this point, the flames had practically engulfed the building top to bottom and were working their way around the walls. Firefighters attempted to put out the fire from the street, but their hoses weren't powerful enough to extinguish the blaze. And outside, debris from the high-rise plummeted to the ground. At one point, it ignited a nearby truck, which firefighters quickly extinguished. Onlookers watched residents wave their arms from their flats, still adhering to the stay-put policy. They were begging to be saved. At 2.47 a.m., almost two hours after the fire began, the London Fire Brigade revoked the stay-put policy. They ordered everyone to get out as fast as they possibly could. But the notice came too late. The building was already a tinderbox, and those still inside were trapped. Coming up, trapped tenants hurry to escape Grenfell. Hi, I'm Christine Schiefer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast, And That's What We Drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about. Not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism, and more, and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches? Who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In the early morning on June 14, 2017, a fire broke out in a flat at London's Grenfell Towers apartment complex. 
Unlike other high-rise fires, though, the flames weren't isolated to just a few floors. Within minutes, the entire building was engulfed. And as first responders struggled to reach residents, information about the emergency lagged too. Some of the tenants didn't find out about the disaster until half an hour after it had begun. At 1.30 a.m., 30-year-old Oluwashan Talabi awoke to shouting outside his door. Assuming his neighbors were having a celebration of some kind, he turned to go back to bed. But the panic in their voices stopped him. Then he heard someone shout, Fire! Fire! Talabi ran to the window, but smoke blocked his entire view from the 14th floor. Worried, he hurried to the front door and opened it, only to find another cloud of smoke. In a split second, the situation turned into one of life or death. Talabi slammed the door and woke his girlfriend, Rosemary. After stuffing wet towels under the front door, the couple waited anxiously with their five-year-old daughter for help to arrive. Instead, they were in for a confusing, anxiety-ridden wait. About 15 minutes later, two firefighters knocked on their door and explained that a fire had broken out. Then they left. Talabi and his family were baffled. Though the firefighters had insisted they would return, he didn't have any idea of when, and they didn't instruct the family to stay put or flee. He could only assume they wanted him to wait for them. To his relief, the firefighters returned a few minutes later. But rather than rescue the family, they now asked to lobby if other tenants on his floor could shelter in his apartment. He obliged, quickly ushering everyone in and doing his best to keep the smoke out. Once more, the firefighters departed, promising to return. Their words provided little comfort, though. Covered in soot and ash, the neighbors huddled into Lobby's apartment and feared for their lives. As the minutes ticked by, it became clear to Talabi that the firefighters might not make it back in time to save them. If he wanted his family to survive the night, he needed to rescue them himself. Talabi decided to gather all of the bed sheets in the apartment and tie them together to form a makeshift rope. Then he knotted one end around the metal window frame and threw the other end down the side of the tower. It didn't reach the ground, but dangled near the second or third floor. With one arm, he planned to hold the rope. In the other, he'd carry his five-year-old daughter down the side of the building. When he neared the end of the line, Talabi would jump, protecting his child against the fall with his own body. The impact would be extremely painful for him, possibly even fatal, but it could save his little girl. And for the young father, that was all that mattered. Talabi inched his legs out of the window, keeping hold of the window ledge with his free hand. He told Rosemary to hand him their daughter. But as his girlfriend tried to pass her through, the five-year-old refused. She kicked against the walls and the windowsill. She wouldn't go. They needed a different plan, and quickly, so neighbors helped Talabi climb back inside the flat. Using a Nigerian cloth, Rosemary helped tie their daughter to his back. Now he could climb down using both of his arms. It would be risky, but it was worth a try. Otherwise, the fire would only continue to spread rapidly and diminish their chance of escape. 
Just as Talabi was about to climb down, the group heard a knock at the door. The firefighters had returned, just as they'd promised, but they weren't the calm presence they'd been earlier. Their masks and uniforms were covered in ash. The panicked look on their faces preceded one grave instruction. Run. Without missing a beat, Talabi grabbed his girlfriend's hand and sprinted out of the apartment, their daughter still on his back. They ran into a hallway filled with smoke, which rendered them blind. Despite the crippling temperatures, the family kept moving, searching desperately for the stairwell. Eventually, they located a handrail and painstakingly began the journey down. As their daughter gasped for breath, Rosemary tripped over something on the stairs. Talabi pulled his girlfriend to her feet and helped her keep moving. But moments later, she fell again over another mound in the stairwell. It was only after descending a few more flights that Talabi realized Rosemary must have stumbled over the bodies of their fellow tenants. Drained from the smoke and psychologically battered, the young father could feel his legs slowing down. They were nearly to the point of buckling. One more obstacle and he might totally collapse. But as the family approached the third floor, Talabi saw a faint light. Rushing towards it, he and Rosemary saw several firefighters waving and shouting at them. The workers quickly untied the child and gave the whole family helmets to protect them from the falling debris. Then, they were instructed to hurry down the last two stories. Minutes later, Talabi and Rosemary ran through the lobby and out to safety with their daughter. After everything, they were alive. The crisis that Talabi and his family experienced was harrowing, yet despite their experience at the brink of death, the family was still considered one of the luckier ones. As the young father would later learn, only a few other tenants had followed them down. Plenty of people remained inside Grenfell. These residents were trapped as many as 10 floors above Talabi's apartment, and they faced two equally fraught choices. Either risk death by traveling down more than 20 flights of stairs, or go to the top of the tower and hope the fire didn't climb up the 220-foot-tall building. Many chose the latter. To avoid the blaze, they went up. On the higher floors, residents congregated in rooms and sealed door openings to prevent more smoke from seeping in. It provided momentary safety, but at an extreme cost. They were now beyond the reach of emergency responders and their equipment. As the night wore on, the fire consumed every side of the building. And for those inside, the situation was now beyond desperate. Many residents were left with another unthinkable decision. Stay and wait for the fire to catch them, or jump from their balconies and risk the long, likely fatal fall. For those who stayed, many called loved ones for final goodbyes. Other tenants asked for prayers or turned to praying amongst themselves. Even while gathered with neighbors, they barely knew the residents comforted each other. In a grim conclusion around 1 a.m. on June 15th, the blaze was finally under control. Though just 24 hours had passed since the first call to the fire department, 71 people lost their lives in the disaster. 
It was the most deadly residential fire in the United Kingdom since the German bombings of World War II. The surviving Grenfell community members were left to search for their neighbors and missing loved ones. They put up signs, hoping to find their family members and friends lost in the confusion the night before. As the smoke settled, though, their grief turned to outrage. How did such a tragedy happen, and why? Coming up, Grenfell residents demand answers. Now, back to the story. The June 2017 fire at London's Grenfell Tower was one of the worst disasters in British history. Though over 200 people escaped, more than 70 died. Amidst the blackened ash of the tower, firefighters made last sweeps of the debris for survivors. None were found. Still, this information wasn't communicated to relatives. They continued to frantically look for any signs of their loved ones. One man, Karim Masili, knew his uncle Hesham lived on the 23rd floor. He held hope that his uncle made it out alive. Karim canvassed the area around Grenfell, asking emergency responders if they'd seen Hesham. When they replied they hadn't, Karim kept searching. After hearing that other tenants had been brought to the local rugby club, Karim looked there too. He pored over volunteer-compiled lists of survivors, looking for his uncle's name. No Hesham. Still, Karim didn't give up hope. He traveled to local churches and centers in search of his uncle. As he traveled around North Kensington, he began to feel that there was no organization at all when it came to identifying missing tenants. There didn't seem to be government registries of survivors, nor was he given the number for a hotline or resources for families to utilize. Without any apparent structure, it was like no one was in charge. Karim took matters into his own hands to find his uncle, going so far as to stop strangers in the streets and ask them about Hesham. But few people recognized him. For those that did, they claimed they hadn't seen Hesham since before the fire. Out of ideas and completely exhausted, Karim went home and turned on the news. He hoped the reporters would give him some information about the fatalities. Maybe they'd even mention Hesham. But as he waited for the screen to give him answers, he grew frustrated. The circumstances seemed wildly unfair. Why did he have to get his information from the television? Shouldn't emergency services or investigators be contacting him? The lack of organization made Karim feel alone in the search for his uncle. Sadly, the news didn't offer much information about Hesham. All Karim could do was keep searching. The next day, he handed out posters with Hesham's picture for hours. He put them up everywhere he could. Lamp posts, walls, cafe windows, churches, mosques, community centers, and more. At the same time, Karim's relatives traveled to nearby London hospitals to see if Hesham had checked in. They, too, had no luck. Desperate for answers, Karim approached firefighters working near Grenfell. He asked them if they knew what happened to residents on the 23rd floor. They remained tight-lipped and told him they couldn't disclose any details about the fire. Karim got the impression they had been ordered to stay mum by their superiors. Their silence only added to his anger. Clearly someone knew something, 
and wouldn't tell him. Fueled by his frustration, Karim stormed off. He gathered up the posters and planned to continue passing them out for the rest of the day. However, as he walked, he noticed a memorial by the wall outside of Grenfell. He paused and crouched to look closer. The fire brigade had placed a line of t-shirts along the sidewalk. Each one had a note written by a firefighter on it. One shirt in particular stood out. The accompanying message apologized to all of those on the 21st floor or higher. It said the firefighters hadn't been able to reach them. The apology made Karim's heart stop. Even though he had been asking tirelessly for answers, if first responders had reached Hashem's home, this was the first time he had any clarity. His uncle was likely dead. Despite this tragic likelihood, Karim still felt that if there was a chance of finding Hashem, he had to try. He continued to pass out posters, make calls, and appeal to anyone with information. He even went on local news. Karim's persistence didn't turn up any answers until August, when firefighters discovered his uncle's remains in his apartment. Hesham was officially declared dead. Heartbreaking as it was, Karim was far from alone in his experience. Just hours after the fire on June 14th, hundreds of people swarmed into the North Kensington area to search for their loved ones but they only found similar shades of the same chaos. Local officials weren't able to help them. Their leaders were caught completely unprepared for such a wide-scale tragedy. Officially, Grenfell Towers fell under the jurisdiction of the Kensington and Chelsea London Borough Council. Fifty councillors oversaw all of the borough's functions. Which included disaster response, But in the wake of the tragedy, it seemed very clear that they were in over their heads. For instance, when the council was offered aid for the Grenfell community from other borough councils, the logical response was to accept. Based on the fire's devastating effects, the surviving residents needed all the assistance they could get. But several councillors told the BBC that the Kensington Chelsea Council failed to accept this aid. Despite the chaos surrounding them, council leadership apparently believed that they would be able to handle the situation amongst themselves. They didn't. There was no visible coordination with local businesses or clubs to support survivors. Out of the aid that was available, most came from generous individuals. And while local charities and businesses offered financial assistance, the council didn't have a clear plan for organizing these efforts. Outrage among survivors and community members grew. The lukewarm reaction to their losses was adding insult to injury. They already felt like outsiders in the richest borough in London. Now, their needs were being met with empty promises. The council members weren't the only officials who disappointed the community. Soon after the fire, Prime Minister Theresa May also made a statement reflecting on the losses at Grenfell and the bravery of the firefighters. However, when she first visited the scene of the fire, the Prime Minister didn't speak with any of the residents. This inflamed tensions between the local community and the Prime Minister. The residents had hoped to talk with her about their experiences and concerns, only to be met with silence. 
The next day, the Prime Minister left an event without a word to the waiting crowds outside who had been chanting for her to come out. For a community that had felt overlooked by their local council and the government for years, it was a clear message. Even after losing more than 70 people in their homes, nothing had changed. They were left without support to mend the losses they endured from their lives and homes being destroyed. Their anger boiled over in the form of protests and demonstrations. Crowds later marched to Kensington Town Hall and demanded to be let in to speak to council officials. The council didn't oblige, but they were soon relieved of all responsibility related to the event. A special task force, composed of central government officials, the London government, metropolitan police officers, the British Red Cross, and the local fire brigade, replaced them. And before long, Prime Minister Theresa May appointed an independent investigator to lead a public inquiry into the fires. The goal was to determine how the fires started and spread, and to clarify if there was anyone to blame. In 2018, The public inquiry began with tributes dedicated to those who died in the fire. Survivors read statements about their loved ones and painfully recalled the events of June 14th. After a year of asking for answers, finally they had a place to begin. By 2019, investigators released the first half of their report on the Grenfell disaster. It explained the details of how the fire ignited and spread. Yet, as of January 2022, over two years later, the second half of the inquiry is still underway. The independent investigator hopes to discover who, if anyone, was responsible for the spread of the fire. But to many tenants, it's not just one group behind the tragedy. It's multiple. Because the same thing that divided Grenfell from other parts of Kensington and Chelsea for decades may also be the reason the tower burned to the ground. Money. Next time, we'll try to figure out who's to blame for the fire by exploring three conspiracy theories related to Grenfell. Like conspiracy theory number one, despite the apparent dangers, Grenfell's landlords cut costs when refurbishing the tower. They put saving money ahead of protecting residents. And conspiracy theory number two. Construction companies manipulated the test results of their products. They knew they were selling unsafe materials, but all that mattered was the profit. And finally, conspiracy theory number three. Landlord carelessness, like that at Grenfell, is a common fault that allows tragedies to occur, especially in lower-income housing across the United Kingdom. During the fire, Tenants couldn't understand how the fire spread so rapidly. But if there's one thing we know from the investigation so far, it's that dangerous materials lined the entire building. While the inquiry is still ongoing, it's enough proof for many people. They've decided people are responsible for the deaths of 72 Londoners. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. 
And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Barely and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theory stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.